church, James chapter 4. We're going to get into chapter 4 this morning. And so if you haven't been here with us, just to kind of recap and, and let you catch us, catch us all up, we've been in this study in the book of James, James being the half-brother of Jesus, who at one point in his life didn't believe in the Lord Jesus, even as his half-brother doubted him, but would come to a point where later on in the New Testament he would be called a pillar of the church as the church would begin to work and to function. And then he wrote this letter, the book of James, back in the, it's in the, near the end of the New Testament, he wrote this letter to Christians who it says who were scattered. They were spread out because of persecution. They were spread out just because of their place in life or their situations because of what was going on around them. And so we see these people that James is writing to. And, and, and this is one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's unbelievably practical. It's unbelievably down on the ground, down to earth where we are. Um, you know, and even in, in where it covers deep doctrinal theological things, it's still so practical to who we are and what we experience in day-to-day -day life. And James, that was James's intention. He wanted to write to a people to help them see, hey, look, as a struggling Christian, as a Christian in a difficult world, God has not forgotten about you. As you're scattered and you're feeling alone, you're feeling misplaced, God has not forgotten about you. And here is what he has to say to you. And so that's what he's speaking to us even here this morning through this text. And so we've been preaching, going through this, uh, this idea of working from victory. And that the work that we do comes from this place of victory that Jesus Christ has ensured for us on the cross through his death. And so last week we talked about, uh, talked about wisdom and how that wisdom informs uh, and, and, and motivates our actions and the things that we do and that the wisdom that we need to obtain and to be living by is the wisdom that God offers us and not the wisdom of the world systems or the earthly systems. And so this morning as we pick up, you know, uh, I want us to see something this morning. And, uh, and, and that thing is that, that there's a battle going on. There's a battle going on within us and around us that James will speak to here this morning. And that sometimes we don't want to acknowledge these battles are happening because in, in this, you know, social media, Instagram world, we want everything to look perfect for people to see. We want people to know that I have my life together and that everything I'm doing is right and I don't make any mistakes and my family has it all together and there's absolutely no chaos and I never curse and I never do anything wrong and I, and I never get angry and I never do the wrong things. That's the world that we live in. But then when James leans into us this morning, he wants to show us something about ourselves first. And the beautiful thing about God's word is that every time he reveals to us something that he's wanting us to step away from, he's placing something before us so much greater that he wants us to enjoy. God never leads us away from something without giving us something better to replace it. And so that's what he lays before us this morning in, in the book of James. And, and for us to understand that there is a massive army around us, within us, as we'll see, charging at us. Each and every one of us with a ferocity of victory in its sights. But Jesus has something different in mind for us as believers this morning. He has something different in mind. So if you could read with me in James chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 through 10 together. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? How much more practical could he get right off the bat right there, right? What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore... 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture in the Bible. And the thing about it is is there's a lot of heavy language in it. But when we begin to lean into that language, we really begin to see what God is trying to tell us and do with us in our lives. And so the first thing that I want us to see that James is trying to reveal to us is that there is a war within us. That there is a war within us. Now, these, this text in the beginning here, when it says in verse 1, he says that, that your passions are at war within you, okay, and that these passions at war within you are causing something. They're leading to something. And he says they're leading to quarrels and fights. And so the thing that I want us to understand, in, in one very big sense, he's speaking of external quarrels and fights, right? That these passions, that our desires, that our focus within us, uh, very self-centered, very selfish, like we even talked about last week, when the wisdom of the world, what does the wisdom of the world do? It leads us to selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And so it's continuing on that thought where he tells us, he says, you know what is causing fights and quarrels around us is our passions and desires. But he's not only speaking of fights and wars around us, but he's speaking of a war within us. Okay, this war that is within us that is spilling out into around us. It's spilling out into our relationships, spilling out into the people that we know, spilling out into the way that we worship, spilling out into the way that our relationship with the Lord functions. And so he's telling us, he's telling us there is a war within us. And you know, and we don't like to admit this. Mostly as Christians, we don't like to admit that there's a war within me for the things that I want to do and the things that I do. I mean, Paul mentions this. He says, I do the things that I, that I, that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I know I should do. And so he's speaking of this internal conflict that is constantly going on in the life of a Christian. He's speaking of this place within us because we know as a believer, when we've put our faith in Jesus, what does Paul tell us in, in the Bible? He tells us that we're a new creation, right? And so, but the thing is, is that not only are we new, that not only are we reborn into the family of God and we are brand new, we still retain this fleshly nature. We still retain this earthly nature that still wars within us for the things that the world offers us, the things that the enemy offers us. And so we're never safe we're never safe as much as we want to admit it, as much as we want to say, well, that's not me. I got I, I don't I don't struggle with anything. Right. I've, I've heard preachers and pastors say this. I, there's not really any sin that I struggle with or deal with. You're a liar. Listen, we there, there's constant our minds are wicked. Our hearts are deceitful. The Bible tells us the Bible tells us that there, there were our righteousness. The good things that we do are like filthy rags. Listen, and the thing is within that. There's, we don't have to hide. You know, I've said this before. When Jesus died on the cross, listen, he outed us all as rotten. There's not a single one of us that stands next to God and says, God, we got it all together. I don't know about all these other people, but we got it. Right? We're doing it. And so the biggest thing that James wants his people to understand as he's preaching and teaching to these Christians right here, he says that there is a, there's a war within you. That is your passions. That is what you want. That is your flesh. That is the selfishness within you trying to spill out into your life. 
And he's trying to bring us to bring our attention to that because, church, if we're not recognizing the enemy in our life, the enemy will always have a foothold in our life. If we're not recognizing that there's an enemy, we'll never acknowledge that there's a fight to be fought and that we'll be ambushed. Right. I mean, just think of any wartime situation scenario. If we pretend like there's no enemy, that enemy will be on our doorstep, knocking on our door, kicking our door down and burning our house down before we know it. And the enemy is functioning in that same way in our life. And James is calling them to this focus to say there are passions that are at war within you. And that they are the cause of the fights, not only externally, because I mean, in reality, any fight that we have with anybody or for any reason is purely out of, our, out of either our selfishness or the selfishness of someone else. And we should never focus and say it's their fault. We should always evaluate ourselves first. He says, the quarrels and the fights among you. And he tells them, he says, what does this lead to? You know, wh- where is this coming from? And continuing on in verse, in verse 2, he says, you desire. You desire. And so what is, what is that desire to want? He says, you want. You want. And he continues on. He says, not only do you want something, something that you're searching for, something you're trying to find satisfaction or fulfillment in. He says, not only do you want, but you covet. And so what does covet mean? Covet means that not only do you want something, but you want something that someone else has. That you're not satisfied with what you have. And that you see what someone else has and you say, I want that. I want what they have. I want their life. I want their stability. I want their financial status. I want their job. I want their family. I want their husband. I want their wife. I want what they have. So not only do we have a want within us, that is coming from these passions, but we always also have this sense of covetedness, that we want what someone else has, which pits us against each other, right? It pits us against each other. And then not only do you covet or you want what others have, but he says, you do not have, you, from this perspective, you perceive that you do not have. You know, and It's this idea, you know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs that the belly of the wicked is never satisfied. You know, the belly of the worldly system is never satisfied because it wants you to keep coming back for more. Okay, it wants you to, it's it's like this buffet. It tells us you can eat all you want. And so we eat all we want of the world system, but what happens is we never find satisfaction or fulfillment in it. And so what we see in this moment, you desire, you covet, you do not have, is, is, is as if we're missing out on something. And this missing out on something, this something that I don't have or that I think I deserve or I think I need, it leads to conflict. It leads to conflict within us where our internal passions are leading us to things. Specifically, if we want to relate this to something very specific, this is what pits a, 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 man, a husband and wife against each other. Maybe it convinces that man or that woman, hey, I can do better. I deserve better than this person in my life. They're not treating me the way I think I should be treated. They're not doing these things the way that that I think they should be done. And so I'm going to start looking for something else. It's going to lead to that conflict. And for Christians, this is where that conflict comes in. Well, I know that this is the one. This is the one that God has I've created this covenant with. This is the person I've leaned into life with. This is the person I've chosen. But my passions within me are telling me that I need more, that I deserve more, that there's somebody else that may make me more happy, that the grass is greener on the other side, right? But the thing we normally find out is that that grass needs to be watered the same way any other grass does. And if you don't water it, it dies like everything else. These desires within us are leading to conflict, that we're missing something. And what we're missing in these ideas between your desire, you covet, and that you do not have is we're missing the goodness of God and we're missing gratefulness in our life. 
That we're, we're not being grateful for where we are, but we're seeking something else outside of ourselves. You know, and this doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to do for our families what they need. Or we shouldn't do things that seek uh, individual growth for ourselves. But if it's coming from this place of our internal desires leading us to conflict, there's something wrong. And we're more than likely missing the goodness of God. And so he continues on. You know, and, 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 and this idea that we have to know is that in this, you're being driven by hunger, a want, a need. You know, in, in the, the way that he continues on in this in verse 3, he says, you ask, but you ask wrongly because you're asking to spend it on your passions. A lot of times we, we wonder why the Lord doesn't do things in our life that we think should be done. You know, and I'm so grateful and thankful for a Lord Jesus, for a God, a sovereign God outside of space and time that sees things from a different perspective than I do, that refuses to give me certain things that maybe I've asked for in my life and haven't been given because he sees where those things may lead me. He sees where those things may bring destruction in my life. He sees where those things may hurt me. He sees because he knows that my asking is coming from this place of pure selfishness. You know, and not that it's wrong to ever pray and ask God for things. We should be praying and asking God for things. We should be laying our needs before the Lord. But the thing that the the problem is, is a lot of times when those prayers are coming from a place of selfishness, we end up taking those things into our own hands. Well, I'm going to do it my way. God didn't fulfill his part of the bargain. You know, I, I believe that as a Christian, that if I if I have a need for something, I should be able to pray it and that thing's here. Right. That I should be, if I, have, if I want this or I want this or, or I want to feel this way, I want to feel at peace or I want to feel joy or I want to feel gratefulness or I want, I want this job or I want this house or this type of spouse or whatever it may be. When those things don't get laid before us because we're truly praying it a lot of times out of a place of selfishness or out of a place of, of our own personal need, then we end up taking it in our own hands. It leads to the conflict. When our, when our focus is selfishness, it leads to conflict. You know, in, in, uh, in Genesis, we see a great example of this. When God comes to Abraham, God is making a promise to Abraham. He says, you will have offspring and those offspring will be numerous. And that, that, that I'm going to use you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the world through you. And Abraham and Sarah are like, all right, but I, we can't have kids. You know, or we've, you know, how, and then time goes on. It's like, well, God, when are you going to fulfill that promise? And then so Abraham and Sarah are like, well, maybe we should take matters into our own hands. And what happens when they take matters into their own hands? They do things sinfully, right? They do things sinfully. Sarah gets a handmaiden and said, because I can't bear a child, you'll use her and you'll bear a child with her and this will be the one. And then God says, that's not what I intended. A lot of times when we're driven by our passions, we take things out of God's hands. or We, we think we are. And we want to do things our own way, which leads to sinful actions. Too often, church, the thing is, too often we are unwilling to ask for things on God's terms, but we expect them on our own. Which leads us to conflict. Leads us to conflict. You know, and and he says here in in, in verse 3, he says that you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This word spend is the same word that in Luke 15 Jesus uses to describe the prodigal son, what the prodigal son did. He took his inheritance from the father and he went and he spent it. He, he, he gave it all away. He poured it into empty passions, into a bucket with no bottom that offered him no true fulfillment or no true satisfaction. It tells us when we're driven by our own passions, that's where it will bring us. 
You know, and this is convincing us that our relationships with God is not fulfilling. Our desires and our needs uh, are not being met, which is showing a relational disconnect, right? When we've convinced ourselves that we're not being fulfilled or satisfied in the relationship that we have, what do we start to do? We start to push away, right? I mean, in our physical relationships, when we've convinced ourselves that we're not satisfied, we start to push away or to seek outside. And so it's the same thing with our relationship to God. And he even goes as far in verse 4 to use this language that's used all through the Old Testament, speaking of us being, in verse 4, you adulterous people. Because remember, the Bible talks about the bride of Christ, the church. We are, we are the bride of Christ. And so it speaks of our relationship to God a lot like a, a bridegroom and a, a groom and a bride. You know, and so he tells us, because we're not satisfied, because we don't think we're getting things on our own terms or what we deserve or how things should be, we are adulterous. We're unfaithful. We're promise breakers. We begin to step away from that covenant. We begin to seek other things outside of God for satisfaction or joy or to be pleased by. And so he says, what does this lead us to in verse 5? It tells us. He tells it leads us to a friendship with the world. And this friendship with the world is enmity, a rebellion, or Aggression towards God. And this is us living to please the old self. This is us giving into that old nature as a Christian, giving into the nature that still dwells within us. And I love how he says, he says, it's not even necessarily that you are friends. He says, but but he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world. So there's this sense of like, even if they're not a friend per se, and we'll talk about what that friendship means or looks like. He says, not not even if you're a true friend, but if you just desire what the world has. I want to be close to the world because the world's going to give me what I think I need. He says, this is going to pit you against God. This is going to pit you against what God wants to do and can do in your life. You know, uh, th- this idea, and a lot of Christians, we function this way, that Christians are, that were outwardly associated with God in the church, but inwardly we're holding on to a deep affection for the evil world system, that we're holding on to the world system. We want things to function the way it functions. But what James is telling us, there's no room for a third will in our relationship with God. There's no room for it. That he's calling us to an exclusive relationship with Jesus for our dependence, for our satisfaction, for our joy. You know, this word friendship is described as a love in the sense of a strong emotional attachment. And so for a lot of us, in in a way, we would probably say, well, I'm I'm a friend of God. Like, I like God. God's a a cool dude. Like, I, I like the idea of God. I like the idea of what God does and what God can do. But the reality for us is, is that that for us, friendship with God is a lot of the way that we see friendship in our culture today. Because what is friendship in our culture today? Friendship in our culture is that I'm friends with 350 people on social media, right? That's how we see that I'm friends with all. I feel like I know those people. I know their names. I know their faces. I know the things that they like to do. I know their job description because it's in there about me. Uh, I see Instagram posts about their family's meals and the things they do. Like I know them. I know what they do. And so for us, when we think of friendship, that's how we see friendship. Really, this very disconnected, informational-type relationship. And for a lot of us, too often, that's our relationship with God. That's what tends to be our, our relationship with God. You know, for, on social media, we peer into people's lives. We know information about them. They're acquaintance. And if we saw them in person, we'd probably be able to call them by name. But we know zero about them. We have no satisfying interaction with them that not only benefits them, but benefits us. 
And the thing is, in this day and age, friendship was a much different thing. You know, there was no social media, obviously, very little travel. And so the people that they were friends with was a very intimate thing, and it was the people very close to them, very, very, very positional. You know, and the thing about it is we even see this from Jesus. We even see this from Jesus. Jesus started out with 12, then Jesus moved to 70, then to 144, then 500. But the thing about Jesus is that Jesus spent the majority of his time, if you look in the Bible, Jesus spent the majority of his time with three men. Three men. Peter, James, and John. Not this James, but a different James. Peter, James, and John. He spent the majority of his time, his intimate time with three people. Because friendship is meant to be intimate. We can't be friends with everyone. We can't be friends with, with 300 people. Not true friends, because the reality is you can't go deep with everyone, and true friendship is deep. True friendship is, is, is substance. True friendship is not a kiddie pool. True friendship is the deep end where you know things about each other that no one else knows, where you're able to unload things in a, very, in a way that, that, that you know these individuals aren't going to tear you apart about or to be critical to you about it. They may, they may rebuke if needed because the Bible tells us to rebuke in love if we need to, to correct. And I, I, I'm thankful for people who rebuke me in love whenever I need that rebuking. And so we need to be corrected at times. But these people that we have this safe space where we can communicate with, we, and with the thing is with our lives we have to make space for that we have to have time for that make time for that invite people into that because we desperately need that type of friendship and so that's the kind of friendship he calls us to with God that it is intimate that we know each other that he knows me and I know him and that I, I have a good understanding about who God is in my life it is this life on life idea and then he continues on in verse 5 and he says, he yearns jealously over the spirit made to dwell in us. Now, the thing we have to understand about this, this word jealous, anytime we hear the Bible talk about things about God, kind of in a human way, we get very nervous. Uh, you know, there, there's text in the Bible in Genesis that says uh, that, that God uh, regretted that he made man. You know, and, and so a lot of times people hear something like that or they see jealousy. And so they think, well, I mean, if God can get jealous then how great of a God is he really? Like if he can regret something that he did, how great, I mean, if he's supposed to be the sovereign, all-knowing God, how can he regret something that he'd do if he knew how it was going to turn out? The thing about the Bible is we have to understand and remember that the Bible is written from an observer's perspective. Influenced by the Holy Spirit and revealed by God, but it's written by an observer's perspective. And a lot of times they would write language that would help people understand what's going on. And so the word to describe this is anthropomorphic language, that it's a human characteristic applied to a spiritual deity. So Jesus, God doesn't regret anything, but that's how we would see it. We would see it as regret. Jesus, God is not jealous in the way that we get jealous. You know, God is not jealous from a place of fear or insecurity. God is not jealous about you. He is jealous for you and in, in his own glory. John Piper said this, and I thought it was a great illustration of what this type of jealousy is. He says, God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from, one, from a life of shame forgives her, marries her, gives her not to the chores of a slave, but to the privileges of a wife and a queen. Someone rescued, ransomed, cleaned up, put in a place of honor, and who, but this person betrays that rescue and runs back to her shame. 
So this is the type of jealousy that God is, for, for a Christian, when he has placed the spirit in us to lead God and direct us, that when we begin to give in to our, our passions for the flesh, our passions for the worldly systems, he tells us that, that he's jealous because of what he's given us. Not a fear and security. He doesn't need anything from us. But he wants us. He wants to bring us in because he's done so much for us. He's cleaned us up. He's rescued us. He's provided for us. And the thing about it is, is when that spirit's within us, God not only is, is yearning for that, but the spirit within us is yearning for God and we'll never feel at peace if we constantly live within our flesh. The spirit within us as a Christian will constantly be fighting to be back in communion with the Holy God, with that relationship, with that intimate relationship. You know, when we've convinced ourselves you are not a good God, you're not a good king, you're not a good provider, we look to his enemies and we say, your enemies will care for me. So that's what James is telling us here. Is that we would not allow ourselves to get to a place where we find we're seeking satisfaction in the enemies of God. But the beautiful thing about it is that he continues on. He says, because there's this war within us that in a lot of ways probably feels unwinnable. The second thing this morning and the last thing he says, there is a way that the war is won. There is a way that the war is won and it starts with this very thing. In verse 6, in spite of all that, I love the word but. The word but is always a pivot point. Whenever it's being very critical of, of who we are and the things that we've done and the things that we're doing, that word but kind of shifts focus to show us. Now this is what God's doing for you. In spite of all of that, this is what God is doing for you. And what does he say? He said he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He says, even though you've chosen friendship with the world, even though you've chose, chosen passions and satisfaction and empty things, he says there is still a way. He is still offering you a way to victory, a way to satisfaction, a way to life, a way to joy, a way to peace, a way to happiness. He says he gives more grace. Not because you've done anything to earn it. And honestly, you've probably done more to lose it. But he tells us. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Because the reality is, church, a lot of times we ask for what we think we deserve. But what do we really deserve? According to a holy God, in light of a holy God, we deserve eternal separation from a holy God because of our sin. The Bible tells us that the wages that we deserve is death or separation. We think the wages we deserve because we think we're so good and so holy as we deserve all the good things that the world has for us. I deserve to be blessed. Blessed and not stressed, right? That's what I deserve. God says, no. You don't deserve that. But I choose to give you what you don't deserve. I, give you, I choose to give you better. I choose to give you grace. And what we begin to learn first starting there that he gives, but he gives grace. He gives more grace. Not only has he given us grace to begin with, to get started, to have this spirit within us that he saved us and made us a child of God. But he gives even more grace to navigate us through the difficulties of life. And what we can understand because he gives more grace is that we should never think that God is ever withholding anything from us. God is never withholding anything from us. No matter how low you find yourself in life, how, no matter how in need you think you are, God is never withholding from us. 
to the lowest of poverty or the highest of riches. He is never withholding from us. That as a child of God, he has placed the same portion before us at his table. And it may look different played out in our lives. It may look different from situation to situation or experience to experience. But God is never withholding from us. And that's what he wants us to know. Romans 5.20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more where we sin, the more his grace abounds. The more he offers, but more grace, but more grace. I act like an idiot and go out and do something that I'm not supposed to do. He says, but more grace. It's not an excuse to do more sin. It's an excuse to rest in his grace more, to enjoy the life that he wants us to have. He's trying to show us how to live in victory, how to win the wars in our life. And he's telling us it's by resting in his grace and that there is no sin that is more powerful than the cross. That Jesus paid the penalty that we were supposed to pay. And he offered that way. His grace is the only hope we have, church, for a rescue, for the true fulfillment and satisfaction in life. That we seek. We seek it. We want it. We desire it. We want to be satisfied. We want to find joy and happiness in this life. He tells us it's through his grace. It's not through anything else that the world offers us. But it's through his grace. And through his grace spilling over into everything else. Isaiah 54, verse 7 and 8. He says, For a brief moment I deserted you, talking about the exile. He says, But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, said the Lord, your Redeemer. And so this is what he's done for us, church. So what do we do now? What's our response to that? And he begins to lay that out. And then we'll be done this morning. And I hope that you can hear this. In verse 7, the first thing he says for us to do is submit yourselves, therefore, to God. To submit yourselves. So what does it mean to submit? It means to line ourselves up under the word of God. To line ourselves up, up under God as a soldier lines himself up under the authority of his commander. That we are putting ourselves, placing ourselves under the lordship of God for his leadership, for his instruction, for his commands, that we are choosing to place ourselves there in submission, putting myself there, letting go of my way, a willing, conscious submission to God's authority, letting go of my way, ordering myself under God. You know, and a lot of times we think, and we'll talk about this in just a second, but a lot of times we think to resist a, 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 a tyrant is courageous, right? To resist a tyrant is, to, is courageous. To not submit ourselves to someone trying to oppress us is courageous. But the thing we need to remember about God is that God is not a tyrant trying to oppress us. God is a good, good father trying to bless us with more than we'll ever be able to obtain on our own. And so it is not courageous to resist God. It is courageous to submit ourselves humbly before his lordship and what he has for us. To let go, because the reality church is holding on to my way, it leads to stress, it leads to anxieties, it leads to worries, it leads to performance-focused activities. We are afraid to let go because we are afraid what will be taken. But the thing is, church, we have to remember what he wants to take is our baggage. What he wants to take is that burden that is bearing us down. The, the, the weight of the world, the weight of our struggles, the weight of our sin, the weight of, of, of our worries and anxieties. That's what he wants to take from us. God is never going to take 
anything from us that he's not going to provide something better for us. And you know what? It may not be physical or monetary. So I'm not telling you any kind of prosperity gospel junk this morning like that God's just going to uh, take your, you know, bless you with money and, and power and all this. He's not going to do that. But what he will promise you is that no matter where you are, you'll be, you'll be satisfied. No matter where you are, you'll find joy and, and peace and happiness. This is unconditional surrender. It's the only way for complete victory. Unconditional surrender to God is the only way to complete victory. In any area of our life kept back from God, there will always be battles. Any area that we have not submitted to God, there will always be battles where these passions will be welling up, where these sinful uh, desires will be coming from within us. And so he tells us, look, where is it at? Where is it at? Is it, is it in your anger? Is it in your lusts for the flesh or for money or for the world? Like, like where is it at? What have you not submitted to God? He says, submit those things. 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because, because He cares for you. We submit to Him because He cares for us. The second thing He says is to resist the devil. This word resist means to take your stand, to stop letting the enemy have rule over your life. This is more wartime language, not only to submit to our authority, but then to resist the enemy, to make an intentional act of resistance against the enemy and the sinful natures in our life. The thing we have to do, church, is we have to choose to stop sinning in certain areas. We have to choose to stop allowing pet sins to live in our life and continue to feed them with little bits of our attention until they get big enough where they take us over and they destroy our lives. He says, choose to stop sinning. We do not have to sin. Will we sin? Will we fall? We will. But that doesn't mean we have to choose to sin. You can choose not to. You can choose to fight. You can choose to withstand. You can choose to resist. The Bible tells us he's given us that power. He's given us what we need. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Stop allowing yourself to fall to silly sin. We're allotting sin a lot more power than it deserves in our lives sometimes. You know, are we rotten? Yes, we are. Are we drawn to sinful things, fleshly things? Yes, we absolutely are. But the thing we have to stop doing, church, is we have to stop making excuses for some of the sin in our life and just choose not to do it. Taking those steps, and I'm not saying that's easy. It's absolutely not easy. There are sins in my life that, that, that I've fought for years over that only recently has the Lord allowed me to walk in more freedom. But it was through day-to-day fights. It was through day-to-day resistance. It requires constant resistance to fight those sinful natures within us. Choose to resist. Choose to resist. Any advantage the enemy has in our life, it's because we've given him the space. And then he continues on in verse 8. He says, draw near to God. Draw near. Pursue him. Approach him. Zechariah 1.3 says, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And we ask ourselves, well, why would he draw near to me? Why? Because of his grace. Not because you've done anything to earn it or deserve it. But he says, if you pursue me, 
I will not leave you behind. If you pursue me, I will not distance myself from you. He tells us to draw near to him and he will draw near, bring himself, his presence, his glory, his blessings to us. Read this quote this week. It said, nearness is likeness. Then when we are near God is when we are the most like Christ. We are drawing near to him. In communion with Him, it changes who we are. It changes the way we are. And so how do we do that? How do we draw near to God? Well, I think it's very simple, but I think it's one of the most difficult things that we probably navigate in our life in a consistent way. The way we draw near to God is through His revealed Word. He's shown us who He is. He's shown us His intentions. And He's shown us what, what He wants to do with us, who we are, and what, what we are. He says, His Word. You draw near to God through His Word. How else? Through His church. God has put this fellowship of believers together to be an encouragement to each other, to have communion with each other, to live life together, to support each other, not to criticize and to to, to be critical of each other, but to support, to be a place, a safe haven, a refuge for us to be able to gather together, to stir each other up to love and good works, as Hebrews would tell us. He has given us the body of believers, not only the universal church on a a big level, but even on a micro level, what we do here with our faith family at Cross Point Community Church This is a blessing. What we do here on Sunday to Sunday and on the weekdays when we do things, it is for drawing near to God. As much as maybe we've allowed it to just be routine or allowed it to just be something we check off our weekend list. Church, what we do here is drawing near to God. Intentionally taking an hour out of our day to draw near to God together. And then also, he has given us leaders and mature believers around us. I'm thankful for leaders and and believers more mature than me that I've been able to depend on and to lean on. Look to people around you that you can lean on to draw near to God through utilizing the stronger than you around you or the leaders around you or the, the mature Christians around you. You will be drawing near to God in that. And then in verse 8, he says this, Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Church, we have to see the seriousness of sin. We have to see the seriousness of sin. It says, cleanse your hands. This is external measures. What external measures do I need to do? To pursue the Lord. What external measures do I need to take to avoid this sin that's trying to these that's feeding these passions within me? What external measures? And then he also t- says to cleanse your hearts. It, it, internal measures. Purify your heart's internal measures, our thoughts, our motives, our desires. And then he continues on in verse 9. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Psalm 51, 17 says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When we have an understanding of the weight of sin in our lives and the lives of other people, it should really break us. It should really, it should really be a weight on us. And that's what he's calling us to is this mindset of Repentance. You know, that, that, that we would see that sin is heavy, that sin has effects, that sin destroys families. Too often we don't, we don't allot the weight to sin that it really should be. Whether it's sinful things we've allowed in our lives that we see, that we hear, that we do. See the weight of sin and allow it to bring you to this place where you understand that it not only breaks you, but it breaks people around you. Church, to, pay, to gain power over sin, we have to grieve the very idea of sin. 
Because it's in this. It's in realizing sin and realizing the, the, the mess of it and the brokenness of who we are and the dirt of our lives. What did he tell us in verse 6? But he gives more grace. Our recognition of sin in our life is not, not, a, not a, a, us asking to be punished. It's us asking to be rescued. Understand that we have sin in our life that is tearing us from the Lord and tearing us up inside because there is a war within us. And so he tells us, submit yourselves to him. Allow the Lord to be your authority. Resist the devil. Begin pushing back. Draw near to God. Pursue him. And then begin to cleanse. Cleanse what's around you. Begin to cleanse and work on your thoughts and your mind and your heart and what you've allowed into your life. And the last thing he says, we do this. We humble yourselves before the Lord and then he will exalt you. You know, this place of authority and and just uh, uh, power that we we want and we desire, it first comes with putting ourselves down, submitting ourselves. And he says that he will exalt us. He will bring us to this place that we think that we should be at times. He will bring us to this place of glory. He will bring us to this place where we're walking side by side with him in glory. And and, and he he wants to give us that. But it starts, church, with us making ourselves low. And church, this isn't a natural state for us. This isn't where we naturally find ourselves. But it's through His Spirit that He brings us to that. And so if we could, if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes as we wrap up this morning, I just want to ask you to pray. First off, to recognize that there's a war within you that's fighting against God, that's at friendship or wishing to have friendship with the enemy. And so how do we combat that? He says, first off, understand that it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. He's got more grace for you even more. Submit yourselves to Him. Begin resisting the enemy. Take a stand against the enemy and sin in your life. Draw near to God. Position ourselves near to God in His Word, in the church, and in leaders and mature believers around us. And then, from all of that, begin to cleanse our lives. Cleanse our hands. Cleanse the external around us. Take the measures Remove things from my life that need to be removed. And through that, begin to purify our hearts, changing our thoughts, our minds, and our motives, and see the weight of sin around us. That the Lord would lead us to begin to walk in the victory of these battles and let us enjoy the life that He wants us to enjoy. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your goodness and your love. Lord, I just pray that you bless us. God, I pray that you challenge these people. God, I pray you challenge me. God, I pray you just challenge us to be a people, to be different. Lord, to understand that there is a war to be won and that we will not win this war on our own and that it's through our submission to you, God, and resisting the enemy. God, and just pursuing you and God allowing that to lead us to a place where we begin to clean those things up in our life. God, help us, help us always remember Lord, that, that we're all broken and fallen. And God, to, to admit the weight of the sin in our life is not to admit that we're any worse than anyone else, but just to put these things into your hand, God, so that we can begin to enjoy what James tells us, the more grace that he offers. God, strip away shame this morning and let us walk in courage of who you are and what you've done. God, lead us into the lives of our family, 
and to the people in our community. God, as we, as we go out today and, and bless some families with some gifts, God, they would all come from a place of just glorifying you, not bringing glory to ourselves, God, but knowing that everything we do is for your glory. God, and even in admission of our sin, we are resting in you, in your grace, and glorifying you in the midst of that, God. Lord, forgive us where we fail you. Lord, give us the courage this morning to submit to you, resist the enemy, and begin pursuing you in our day-to-day life, Lord. We love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.